All right. So hi, everyone. And thanks for joining the Badass Women in Business podcast, where I interview interesting and successful women in business so we can all learn from their experiences. Today, I'm joined by Lucia Annunzio, who is a badass and who I've been lucky enough to count as a mentor at various points in my career. Uh, Lucia is a leadership coach, author, and is the president and CEO of the Center for High Performance. She's known by her clients as the CEO Whisperer and has spent over 25 years observing Serving, analyzing, and coaching CEO, C-suite, and board dynamics. She is the author of Contagious Success, I have a copy, um, which is a best-selling management book that was voted Fast Company's Reader's Choice the year it was released. Lucia is currently part of the Executive Education Faculty at University of Chicago's Booth Graduate School of Business, and she teaches their most popular program, High Performance Leadership. So welcome, Lucia, and thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Amanda. It's a pleasure to be on your show today. I appreciate it. It's great. All right. So you are the CEO of the Center for High Performance. And yes. can you explain to us what does that role entail? Well, basically, I'm the spokesperson for the company. You know, I'm the face of the company. I set the strategy. I develop the business, close the business, and then I pick the team that I feel best qualified to do the business. Interesting. So, um, and what is it? What is the Center for High Performance? What are you guys So the doing? Center for High Performance is a research-based management consulting firm that targets the C-suite. Our core belief is that a company can't be better than the team that runs it. And so what we do is work with senior executive teams to apply our research on what um, accelerates profitable growth to that team to help them make better decisions about the company and the company's culture. Oh, so you've been doing this. Did you, you founded the company, right? And I it founded this company. I worked traditional consulting firms for years. My last real job was I was the CEO of a subsidiary of a publicly traded company. And I felt strongly that the consulting model was dead, that it really didn't necessarily help people, that you had to sell to the bench, which means you had to sell the work for the people that you had. You paid lots of money for offices you were never in. Uh, you, you didn't necessarily have to get to the root of the problem. You had to sell what the client was asking for, which is almost always not what the problem is. And so I decided at a, a very lucrative part of my career, which some people would say was dumb, that I'd had it with regular consulting and I was going to build my own model. And that's what I've done. Yeah. I, I have a contract model. I have no employees, no office space. I only work with senior people. I try to pick people that I think are the best at the best in the world at something. And I bring them in as the engagement needs it. And I use the company's own people to as leverage, meaning they do the work. I teach them how to be internal consultants so that when we leave, our work doesn't leave. It's in the brains and hearts of the people that we worked with. This is uh, fascinating. So like you've been doing it for 16 years. And yeah. so obviously you've built the brand and built... Yes kind of all of these relationships over the years. But when you got started, how like how did you start? What what did you do? Uh, well, you know, like were you cold calling people? I have a brand. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I mean, I've written three books, I work at Booth. So, my brand 
in some ways is the brand of the company. And I've never really marketed my business. It's all word of mouth or usually I get business because somebody sees me someplace, either at Booth or I've given a keynote speech or I've done a workshop at some big association and someone will give me a call. I mean, when I wrote my first book, uh, Communicoding, an amazing thing happened. I gave a keynote speech and someone came up to me afterwards and handed me their business card and said, I'd like to work with you. Will you give me a call? Now, I am the opposite of you, Amanda. I am not a salesperson. I am not an extrovert. I hate working the crowd. And so I thought, oh, my God, this works. When you write a book that people actually read, they come to you. You make a speech and there's a line afterwards and they have questions for you and give you their business card. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is tailor made for the introvert. That's great. So, so I didn't know you were an introvert and I've oh, known I'm such for a an long introvert. time. Yeah. So like, cause one thing you're really good at, I wonder if this is like your business experience or what, but when you meet people, you cut right to the chase. Right. So like, like, and you're really quick at that. And then it's a quick decision. I like them. I'm not like, and then you move on. So like, do you feel like I'm very good at reading people? I mean, I've, my studies are in behavioral um, science. I understand behavior as an objective data point. It becomes subjective because somebody's looking a certain way and somebody calls that look a name. That may or may not be true, but we all label people taking away the objectivity of the data. So just because somebody's frowning doesn't mean they're unhappy. But we make assumptions what objective data means. That frown means that person must be unhappy. Well, not necessarily. They may just be pensive. They may be thinking. They may not even be aware of the fact that they're frowning. They may be happy and not realizing that their face is configured in a way that doesn't look happy. And so I'm good at reading people in the moment. And I'm, I mean, being an introvert doesn't mean you're not good at social connection. I'm really good at having deep conversation, making friends, keeping contacts with people that I've known for a number of years. I'm just not good at working crowds. <laughs> I don't know that anyone is really going to work the crowd, honestly. Well, like people are like, oh, I've seen you, there. Amanda. I think you're pretty good. <laughs> you just got that bubbly, delightful personality. You smile broadly. You look comfortable in a room. And I think people gravitate to you because of that. That's, uh, but thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it's it. It's true. Okay. So, um, so teaching at Booth, um, what, what, what's, you've been doing that for a long time as well. How did you get into that? And kind of what, what, uh, what's, uh, share a little bit about that role if you can. Well, it, it, I'm the accidental professor. Most people at Booth grew up to be a professor and they consult on the side. I consult and teach on the side. And I never aspired to be a professor. I never thought that a school like Booth would want me to teach. In fact, I thought when I was asked to be, to be on the faculty that it was a joke. One of the deans called me up. It was right after my second book came out. He said, you know, I read your book, um, e-leadership. I thought it was really good. And we don't teach anything like that at Booth. Would you be interested? I think, I swear to God, this is the truth. I think it's one of my friends playing a joke on me. So I play along and then he starts asking me questions from the book. He had actually read it. And I thought, 
okay, none of my friends would be reading this book. This really is the dean of the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Oh, and then it was the GSB. And I'm like, I have this moment. And, you know, he said, do you think you could put together a syllabus? And I said, sure. And he said, I can't guarantee you'll have a course, but I have some pull. And I laughed. And 23 years later, I'm still there. So this is amazing. And it sounds so easy. It's like, oh, just write some books. But like you have like to get the books no. read and out there. Right? No, writing books isn't easy. <laughs> yeah. so, and it's coming up with the ideas. It's coming up with the concepts. But that's what I'm good at. You know, I'm good at coming up. I'm good at conceptual thinking. I'm good at putting things that don't fit that look like they're disparate and putting them together and coming up with something new, you know, so that it's not easy, but it's the way my brain works. So I always wanted to write a book. I always knew I'd write a book. I never thought, never. And I honest to God, I can't walk into Booth without being somewhat humbled, being like, oh my God, they're letting me in. Is this real? <laughs> I love the school. I'm so proud to be part of the faculty. I think it is a great institution. And I mean, I sincerely can't believe that I'm there. Yeah, I know a lot of people who went there, they're also very proud to have gone there and, yeah. and their MBAs. Um, so, but let's talk about this, right? So, because a lot of people who are listening um, are, uh, you know, kind of starting out in their careers and trying to get like, mm -hmm. you know, learn from, you know, what do we do? How do we get started? So, yeah. um, so you know, I was kind of being a little facetious, like, oh, just write a couple of books and then you'll get it. Yeah. But like to, to have the gravitas to have a business book that you write, right? And put in all that effort, but to have people want to read it, like that takes getting on a, a career path, right? You have to have had success before you release a book. Yeah. Um. Uh, where, how did you get on the career path you're on? Like, well, let's you know, I guess the biggest advice I give to people is life happens in crooked lines. It doesn't necessarily happen the way you think it's going to happen, but somebody is going to recognize some potential in you that you don't think you have. And especially women. And you're going to say, oh, no, I can't do that. If somebody recognizes potential in you and you think it'll be fun, do it because that's going to put you on the path that you need to go on. Your career path is what is the best and highest usage of your brain? It's not a straight line. And someone saw that I could go to Arthur Anderson and help him with a problem that he was facing and I said, well, I don't know how to do that. And he said to me, I think you can. And that was the beginning of my career as a business consultant. And I'm grateful to him to this day because I loved it. I got to use my studies and my brain to figure out human dynamics in a business setting and how it affected making money. And I thought, okay, if it affects making money, people are going to listen to you. They're not going to fight you. It's not personal. You're not hurting people's feelings. It's not about their kids. And I loved it. It was fun. And that just took me on a path that I never thought I'd go on. So, so was Arthur Anderson your first like real job, career job? No, I started in community mental health. That's what I mean. I thought I was going to um, help. I always wanted to make an impact on the world and change people's lives. And I thought I would do it in the not-for-profit world. And I learned very quickly in my 20s that 
making an impact in that world requires a type of stamina that I don't have. Uh, I'm too logical. Uh, things make have to make sense to me. People have to make smart decisions. And I didn't see that happening. I saw a lot of money being wasted. I saw a lot of people not being helped. And I was disillusioned very early on. That's interesting. And now, hopefully of- it's changed. That was a very, I won't say how many years ago that was. <laughs> but, but you know, this opportunity yeah. happened and I ended up starting as a cons- small consulting room, building a company with three other women. And we were part of a world that was in those days called the soft side of business and no one was doing it. And we were really smart. And quite frankly, we were making it up with our logical minds and it worked and we solved big company problems at a very young age. In fact, we got the exclusive oil industry rights to a global contract with Amical Oil Company because we figured out how to help them get more creative um, creative uh, ideas for how to drill for oil when oil, when there was a shortage of ideas. And I mean, you know, and it was all about how people were treated. It was a simple, it was actually very simple. It was that when people would bring in an idea that was different from the quote unquote Amico way that they weren't aware they had, they would send people back to do it over again instead of understanding that there might be two different ways to look at the same problem. So okay. and it was such a hit yeah. that it, it it you know my career went not went nuts after that just went nuts and then my first book came out and we we were creating a field without even realizing we were doing it. So that's the thing that I think um, you know would be interesting to hear about. So like you know whatever year what could we, was it the eighties or the nineties was it this early eighties eighties so like you know. Um, it feels like, so I remember 20 years ago um, uh, and how it was for women in the workplace um, and it wasn't what it is now. So that was, you know, longer ago. How did you guys just kind of break through that? Like, so it's like three women building your own consulting company. How did you, like, how did you get people to take you seriously? I mean, obviously it's hard. hard all the things. It was hard. So this, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I wasn't planning to it, but when you asked that question, I just talked about Amico. We had to do a pilot with the senior executives of Amical Oil Company. I mean, this is a big deal. You know, I was, I'm a really good speaker, but I'm young and, and I'm three months pregnant. Okay. And I don't want anybody to know I'm three months pregnant. And the people on the senior executive team are all scientists and they ask lots of questions and they drill you and they I'm little and I'm a woman and oh my God, they gave me the hardest time any group ever gave me. And I, when I finished the seminar, I collapsed. I fainted. I was so weak and we didn't do a good job. And we had two weeks to undo it, to figure out what went wrong. And we came back and we came back strong and they were so impressed with our resilience how we recouped, how smart we were, that despite them wanting not to listen to us, 
they bought the exclusive oil industry rights to our project. So if you're going to be a woman and you let that bias, conscious or unconscious, get you down and you don't come back fighting, not fighting enough, but fighting with your brain, you're going to lose. But if you understand it's not about you, it's about getting the work done and you figure out a solution and you impress people, they're not going to care if you're a man or a woman. That's the history of my career. That's fascinating. That's um, and it's great. Um, uh, you actually fainted though. My goodness, I actually fainted. It was that brutal, and they didn't realize I was pregnant because I yeah. did it so well till I was about eight months pregnant. I never wore maternity clothes. I only wore baggy dresses. But then finally, it got to a point where you know they couldn't. And this one guy comes up to me at a cocktail party. He goes, "Are you pregnant?" I said, yeah. he goes, oh my god I can't believe it <laughs> the other thing I think and this is going to sound funny now I coach CEOs for a living I think being a woman has been an advantage to me it's been an advantage because I'm tough enough and as you said I get to the point and I'm I can be in your face really tough but I'm also very soft I'm very empathic I'm very kind and caring. And I think CEOs are more willing to let their guard down, to show some of their vulnerabilities, to ask for help because I'm a woman. Because men have a very, very hard time showing vulnerability to other men. And one of the things I've appreciated having, you know, I live, I, I grew up in a man's world, having only men for clients is that men have the same problems with softness that women have with aggressiveness. Most men, especially executives, don't have permission to bring their soft side to work, their kindness to work, their um, love of their child to work. And often that's the most attractive part of them. And I give them the permission. I mean, my CEOs, they're multidimensional human beings. But the only part of them they bring to work is the results-oriented tough guy who made it in this hard industry. Well, yeah, that's true. That's what they got rewarded for. But is that going to get them where they want to be? Is that going to get the company where it needs to be? And nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And on some level, they know it. That is fascinating. It's um, and it's so interesting because um, of where you know the industry I'm in, where I work, um, mm -hmm. our CEO is our founder, and um, so mm -hmm. I think he, he just seems like he just knew that anyway. <laughs> like you yeah. know, an authentic and you know, um, genuinely interested in other people, and doesn't have to have that facade. But that could be just because it's software. Because well, it also depends on his ages. One of yeah. the things I love about teaching right now is the. People that are getting to be in senior executive positions right now in the world, for the majority, are between 40 and 50. And their role models were the baby boomers, who I am one, but I think baby boomers leaders in many ways screwed up the world. And I think they're looking up and saying no. And what I love about teaching them is they're so ready to be great leaders. And I'm just giving them permission to do what they already know is true. And I always end my classes the same way because it's almost always true now. These The new generation of leaders gives me hope. Like your CEO, I think they get it intuitively. 
And if they do it, not only will they make companies better, they'll make the world a better place. That might sound corny, but it's true. People spend more time at work than they do at home. How you leave work is how you go home. So if you grew up in a culture where you were punished or blamed or felt it was toxic, you're going to go home in a bad mood and you're not going to want to read your kid a story. You're not going to want to play outside. You're just going to want to be crabby and have a drink, you know, or food or whatever your comfort poison is. But if you've had a good day at work and you feel like that oxytocin is running through your body, you go home and you want to play with your kid. You want to tickle him. You want to, you want to read a story. So I, I honestly believe that the way companies get led makes the world a better place. That's, um, I agree. <laughs> so I went with you. Um, all right. So how, what was, uh, changing tax a little bit, um, what was your first real job? So, um, like, like, you well, know, yeah, I opened a community mental health center in Edgewater uptown. And I, <laughs> I found the property, um, got it painted, had a, uh, people from the neighborhood come in, um, I've always been a community organizer on some level. I uh, got 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 them to donate furniture, had a garage sale, raised money, you know, and it was fun. But the community mental health system I felt was broken and I had no power or influence to change it. I wrote letters to the National Institute of Mental Health documenting how money was being wasted and how patients weren't being helped and I never got a response. And that's when I got disillusioned. And then as life had it, opportunity presented itself to me. And, and as we said earlier, the rest is history. Amazing. Um, so what that was that the best career decision you ever made? Or and if not, what was? Mm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think taking that job, the consulting assignment at Arthur Anderson was probably the best career decision I ever made. Uh, the second one was um, in the end of the 90s, I quit my job for various reasons because I wanted to prove that the soft side of business wasn't soft with quantifiable data. Um, I didn't want to feel like I was selling snake oil. And so I quit my job in search of a funder, somebody who would believe what I believed. And I gave myself a year. And luckily, just as the year was ending, I ran into somebody at Sandberg Village. He was coming out the, out the door and I was going in. He had been a former client. And I said, John, I've been looking for you. And he said, really, I've been looking for you. I said, really? And I told him my idea. He was looking for a thought leader with an idea. I had an idea. He wanted to launch a company with a with a book and an idea. I had a research study and a book. You know, it was, again, it was luck. It was opportunity, idea, and courage intersected. And so that was the second best. Because that book, Contagious Success, the one you have, that catapulted my career. So uh, Communicoding and E-Leadership, they helped me get here, but contagious success. I could never have opened 
the center for high performance and used me as a brand without the without contagious success. Makes sense. So, and hold on, you just bumped into him. Where like, you just well, we, I was walking into an appointment. He was coming out of a, an appointment at the same same time, and he said, "Let's have lunch." He gave me his card. We had lunch two days later, and I thought, "What? He's the CEO of a big company." But I had what it was, he didn't know it, but I happened to have had what he was looking for and he had what, and he needed what, what I wanted to sell. It's amazing. And I was just about to give up. I was at the point of giving up. And that's a good thing too. Maybe the message is like, don't give up, you know, and just seize these like little opportunities, these connections with other people, right? Like when someone presents in front of you as someone who's maybe open to at least having a conversation, take it, right? Exactly. Well, I've always believed that you have to dream big, but when you dream big, that's a conversation that will lead you somewhere. Maybe not to the big dream, but somewhere you wouldn't have gotten to without the big dream. So I always believe dreams are a conversations that lead you to opportunities and be open to those opportunities and make sure that that opportunity isn't just going to get you the next rung on the ladder, but it's something fun, something you can be passionate about. Because if it's not fun and you can't be passionate about it, you're going to be miserable and you won't do your best work. That's just it. And it's not touchy-feely girl stuff. It's neuroscience. When you feel good about something, oxytocin runs through your body. When you don't, when you have difficulty getting through the day, when you don't like your job, you're filled with adrenaline. And adrenaline is, you know, it's an upper and a downer. As soon as you crash, you either need more coffee, need more food, need something. But it isn't oxytocin or serotonin, which are natural highs. And natural highs come from feeling good about what you're doing in the moment. That's interesting. I feel like mostly I feel good about what I'm doing in the moment, but, but well, I not every single problem. moment of every day. I'm yeah. talking on a on a continuum. Do you feel better than worse? You know, you take the great resignation, for example, it's over now because the inflation is so bad. People didn't quit their job because they got comfortable. They didn't want to not go back to work because they got comfortable in jogging suits and didn't wear makeup. When you leave a toxic environment and you find out you can breathe again and you remember what breathing feels like and you remember what oxytocin feels like, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, you don't want to go back into the poison. So when people say they don't want to go back to work, I don't believe they don't want to go back to work. I believe that's what they believe. I believe they don't want to go back to toxic work environments. And they've gotten comfortably miserable at home. People are not comfortable without social connection. Even introverts need social connection. Well, that's true. For sure. I found the pandemic really difficult. Um, I did too. I yeah. did too. I was depressed. I missed. Well, I love to collaborate. I'm, I'm accused of being an, an innovator. Somebody who's very creative. You can't be innovative by yourself without idea generation from other people, without having a good time, without conversation. It just doesn't happen. You can do innovative kind of things, but big innovation comes from social connectivity, hallway conversations, meetings, brainstorming, 
And I am gotten pretty good at Zoom. I can even teach over it. I don't like it, but I can do it. You cannot have a really good brainstorming meeting on Zoom. Not like you can in person. It's just not the same. And it's not because I'm a baby boomer. It's because I'm a creative. And I know the difference. Interesting. And it, yeah, it's all, it's almost like sort of the happy accidents, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's where kind of like inspiration comes from. So sort of- Right. So when right. you're in a room with a whiteboard and there's five people and you're generating ideas and it's one idea leads to another idea and you're feeling that energy and you're feeling the oxytocin in the air and you're feeling just the flow, that's where the great ideas come from. And that's very difficult to replicate on Zoom. I've tried and I've done it. And my team and I, we've done during COVID, we had to, but it's not the same. After COVID, we went back to renting our hotel rooms, meeting in a city, getting a whiteboard. And gosh, it was just so fun. And the camaraderie and the social part of it and working with the client that way is just better for your health, better for your psyche and better ideas. Interesting. I think I agree. I, I feel like I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing. I'm not I, saying I, you shouldn't say that the hybrid is, a, that you should do hybrid, but there, I honestly just don't think it's going to work. And if companies are doing it exclusively to save money, I think that's a real short-term decision. I don't think there's a one size fits all either. I think each company has to look at what's best for it, but I think each person needs to really ask themselves, am I comfortable at home or am I comfortably miserable? Is it I'm comfortable because I don't have to get in, in a car? Am I comfortable because I don't want to go back to a toxic culture? Do I really not need that social interaction? Am I just used to it? What did I used to like about going to work, going out to lunch with people, maybe having cocktails after work? What's replicating that in your life? I think those are just real important questions to ask yourself. No, that's um, that's good. I, you know, I find so um, like I've been in field, the field, right? So where you know, um, traveling around, visiting customers, whatever, for many years, and you know, yeah. some home, and then popping into an office. So that is in hybrid forever before hybrid right. was a thing. Right. Me too. Right. I've been hybrid forever. Yeah. So the joy of connecting with people in person, like, yeah. is, uh, is like something that I definitely need but at the same time I'm cool if I'm on the road or if I'm somewhere else and I can connect using technology so like it's kind of like that combination and I think people just need to find what works for them as well but organizations are mandating people coming back to the office now that's start we're seeing it a lot with our clients like they're they're saying you know that's it three days in the office you've got to be here and um there's a lot of grumbling but it's at this point just given where the economy is and what's happening people aren't quitting over it right they're just like all right I guess I'm back so it's well, if you're gonna, if you're gonna mandate people to come back to work you better figure out why they don't want to be there you better do things to change your corporate culture you better make coming back to work fun because when you force people to do things all you can do is get them to bring their body you can't get them to bring their hearts and soul so what do you got to do to not just get them to bring their body but how are you going to engage their hearts and their soul so they want to be there and they do their best job and when companies leave that out of the equation, in my opinion, they make a huge mistake, huge mistake. An HR person told me that since COVID, they've been trying to reduce costs 
in the HR department because they want to give people better raises. And what she said they found out is that since COVID, the two things that have gone up the most and 150% in insurance costs is mental illness and muscular problems. Muscular problems are due to stress. When you're stressed at any time, it causes you to get a, a, a tightness in the muscle. If that tightness isn't relieved through some stress relieving technique, it's gonna turn into a structural issue like sciatica, like a bad back, like, um, you know, like a neck, like a neck pain. And eventually you might need surgery, but all of that is caused from mental illness is the stress that people have gone through since COVID and after COVID. And they believe that their coping mechanism of staying home is gonna make them better. I don't think so. The other thing she told me is that the um, antidepressant drugs, the cost of it on their insurance has gone up 125%. So if people are so happy at home, why is that phenomena happening at this big global company? I don't believe people are happy at home. As I said, I think they're comfortably miserable. It's amazing. Um, I agree. And that stat is crazy. Like the increase. It's, it's mind boggling. When she said that, I said, can I, can I quote you? And she said, yes. And so now I'm going to ask that question of HR people. Look at your company stats since COVID. They have, what's gone up? What are the costs of insurance that has gone up? They're saying that right now, the, the um, lack of employee engagement globally is costing the, the global GDP, $7.9 trillion. Oh. Yeah. So it's not working. I don't care if remote work is increasing productivity. Productivity is just how much stuff you get done during a day. Productivity does not equal high performance. You don't get high performance without creativity. You don't get sustainable growth without innovation. And as a human being, you don't get fulfillment just by crossing stuff off of a list. No, that is true. You might you might get some enjoyment, personal enjoyment, because your list is is done. It does it it doesn't it doesn't get the juices going. That's true. Um, pivoting a little bit, who was your best manager over the course of your career, and why? Um. The guy that bought uh, the research because he believed in me, because he believed in what I believed. He was willing to take a risk. He was willing to spend a lot of money on global research where we didn't know that we would find what we were looking for. He was willing to bet on that I could not only do the research, get the right people, um, write the book, and sell it with nothing more than having worked on a client assignment with me. And he believed in me through the whole process. There were doubters in the company. There were people that didn't want him to spend the money he didn't want to spend. There were people that um, didn't want to work with us in the company. And he was my advocate throughout the entire process. He told the marketing people that they didn't think it was the best way to spend their marketing dollars. He said, this is the idea I want to promote. I mean, I'll never forget him. 
um, his lawyers found some loopholes and contracts that he and I had done that they didn't have to pay me as much money as I thought they had to pay me. And he just looked at those lawyers and said, the spirit of the contract, she is interpreting correctly. She gets the money. Wow. That is the spirit. And he was a lawyer too. He said, it's not just the words. It was the spirit. What was the intent of those words? I mean, you don't forget people like that. It's amazing. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, what inspires you most? Inspires me most. I, I, I think I answered that. The new generation of leaders coming into the world today. I have, I have consulted in six countries around the world. And I can tell you that basic human need is basic human need. It doesn't matter where you live, what kind of clothes you wear, what your cultural norms are. People need the same things. First time I went to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. What we were, if I had closed my eyes and not looked at how the people were dressed, I could have been in downtown Manhattan. People were complaining about the fact that their bosses were piling on, that their bosses were autocratic, that they couldn't get work-life balance, that they didn't spend enough time with their kids. And I'm like, oh my God, why do we use the differences in human beings to separate us when we're all so alike? If we could just care about each other and see what makes us similar, see what makes us human, I think we'd all be happier. That's a good way to kind of wrap us up. Um, cause that is, uh, I agree. <laughs> so, um, but I'm going to ask you two more questions cause they're kind of fun. So yeah. one is what is your favorite podcast? Obviously not this one, but do you have one that you recommend uh, for our listeners? I like big brains from the university of Chicago. I'm, I'm, I'm brand biased. <laughs> All right. Well, that's good. And then what is your favorite business book that you didn't write? Okay. Um, it's going to take people by surprise. It's 11 Rings by Phil Jackson. I think one of the best leaders in the entire universe is Phil Jackson, the coach of the Bear, uh, Bears, the Bulls and the LA Lakers. How he won 11 rings is how people should lead and manage human beings. I, would, I love that book. It's on the top of my class reading list. I think Phil Jackson is a genius. And I think the book is a masterpiece. That is awesome. Um, did you get into that because you're from Chicago and you were a fan of the Bulls? Or did you just, did someone recommend it to you? Um, probably, no, no one recommended it. I've just always liked Phil Jackson. I always admired him as a coach. I'm not much of a sports person, but how, how do you live in Chicago and not like the Bulls, you know, yeah. during, I mean, I, I was, I remember when Michael Jordan was on the Bulls. Um, so you, you yeah. And I always kind of had a crush on Phil Jackson. I, I, I just thought he was so cool as a human being, as the fact that he could bring Buddhist philosophy to a bunch of basketball players I mean I just thought he was a cool dude and then he and then he proves it he wins he wins 11 rings and people say it's because he had a team of stars there were lots of teams of stars that don't win rings how did he take a team of stars and turn them into world champions I mean that's the story and that's what companies need today how do you take a team of stars and make history 
That's awesome. And yeah. that is where we'll end. So okay. yeah, thank this you so, was so much. Fun. I know, thank right? You, Amanda. <laughs> it's been great to catch up with you. Really appreciate it. And thanks. Well, we have to catch up in person oh, for soon. Sure. Okay. For sure. All right. Well, thanks to all of our listeners as well. And um, I will see you all next time. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.